Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for being our Father. We thank you for drawing us to Christ, for adopting us as sons and daughters of the one true living God. And while we cannot meet in person, Lord, during this time we ask that you would turn our hearts more directly, more completely to Christ as we come to your word today. We ask for our daily bread. We ask that your word would nourish and strengthen and encourage our hearts, especially in the midst of the situation that we find ourselves in, in our country, in the world right now. Be with us during this time. By the power of your Holy Spirit working within us, grant us not only understanding, but a desire to obey and to do your will, to come to you for nourishment, to come to Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So like I said, we are going to be resuming our study in the Gospel of John today. We're going to be looking at John chapter 6, verses 48 to 59. For the last month, I've been preaching a series, kind of, uh, that I've referred to as Comfort in the Quarantine, um, really looking at what Scripture has to say to our current situation, what Scripture says about facing difficult circumstances, which, of course, we are right now, all of us are, in one way or another, whether it's because we're quarantined, or maybe some of you got laid off from your jobs, or whatever the case may be, um, we have spent the last month taking a look at how God's Word offers comfort to us in times of tribulation. Uh, Again, I've called the series Comfort in the Quarantine, but whatever works, right? So today we're going to be looking at John chapter 6, going back into our John study uh, for lesson number 51, actually, looking at verses 48 to 59. And you know, as I speak right now, today, doctors and scientists around the world are racing to, uh, to, to solve the problem that the world is facing right now, to create a vaccine for the coronavirus, which is this virus that has very, very quickly led to a global economic shutdown. Now, of course, the goal of creating a vaccine for this virus is to preserve lives, to to prevent the virus from killing people. Uh, They're saying that this could be as much as a year to a year and a half away at this point before they have a vaccine that they're ready to distribute. In the meantime, states have mandated that businesses uh, be closed unless they are ruled as being essential. Uh, Restaurants are able to continue to operate, but only under very, very strict guidelines. They're only able to do takeout or delivery, but countless other privately owned businesses have been completely shut down during this time, all for the sake of minimizing the number of lives that are lost to this virus in the pandemic. And then on an individual level, 
We've been told that we should practice only, uh, you know, the, the, the same things that we should always be practicing, common sanitation practices like washing our hands and um, not touching our faces unless necessary. But we've also been instructed to practice a, a new term, a new concept to us called social distancing, maintaining a distance of at least six feet between people. On top of that, we've been told that we should be wearing face masks, not so much to ensure that we don't get the coronavirus, but to ensure that if we do by chance have it, that we don't pass it on to somebody else, at least not as easily as we would have if we were not wearing face masks. And once again, this is all done in the name for the sake of minimizing the number of lives that are lost in this pandemic. Now, if there's anything that you might say characterizes Western culture, for at least the duration of my life it has, uh, it would be that we have tried and tried and tried to do everything within our power to live as long as possible. I'm not only talking about uh, getting vaccines, I'm also talking about eating healthier. I'm also talking about the way that we have created a pill for absolutely everything and all at a very, very very steep cost to the average consumer. On top of that, on top of, of this, this desire to prolong life, death has become something that we've really become essentially blind toward. Uh, our, we put our parents in nursing homes, for example, where we don't have to watch them face the end of their earthly lives. Of course, if you look throughout history, uh, that's a a brand new concept. Throughout history, uh, you know, the, the children have taken care of the parents into old age. But let's understand what this tells us. This tells us that as a culture, we love our time here on earth. We love our earthly lives, and we are terrified of death. And yet, it's really not all that unique to our culture, is it? It's not something new. People have imagined and sought a means by which immortality might be gained for all of recorded history. It's certainly not a new phenomenon. If you've read the novel Gulliver's Travels, uh, Gulliver's interpreter at one point notes that it seems to be the universal desire of all of humanity to have immortality. In the novel, there's a group of people who have found the secret to that, the secret to gaining immortality. And as noted in the cliff notes for the book, quote, Gulliver's first reaction to hearing about their immortality is one of envy and enthusiasm because it would allow a person to gain immense wealth, wisdom, and the philosophical serenity, end quote. Can you imagine? Gulliver certainly could, can you? But God has something better. God is far greater than what our imagination can conjure up. And he's wiser than any scientist in a lab. When the time was right, God sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to offer eternal life to the world. He doesn't offer a gimmick. He doesn't offer a solution that is cheap or that's easy. Rather, he died. He sent his only son to die in order that we may live. He didn't give us a pill 
to prolong life. He didn't give us a philosophy to prolong life. He gave his own flesh and blood so that all who believe in him savingly will never, ever perish. So today, we're going to be continuing our study in John chapter 6. The main themes of this chapter, um, we've looked at some of them. Uh, They include the reality of false followers, uh, the sovereignty of God in salvation, uh, how God's purposes in election are accomplished, and how salvation is received. Uh, This is a very, very rich chapter. The gospel is all over this chapter. I would say that there is just no other chapter in all of Scripture that compares to it. Throughout this chapter, Jesus has offered himself as the means of receiving eternal life over and over and over again. He claimed to be the spiritual food that brings eternal life and satisfaction to all who come to him in true saving faith. So the chapter began, if you remember, with the feeding of the 5,000, which is what they call it. Uh, Really, we know there were about 5,000 families there. But this was, in fact, the very central point of uh, of that lesson, of that that miracle. Uh, And yet, not one of them believed. In verse 27, he instructed the people, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. What's he trying to instruct them to do there? to come to him for the food which brings eternal life and satisfaction to all who come to him in true faith. Of course, he's referring to himself there. He was telling them that they must believe in him, which becomes more obvious as he goes on to say in verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And yet, despite Jesus' repetitious pleas here, not a single person believes. Not even one. Jesus says to them in verses 32 and 33, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Of course, he's referring to himself there. He says, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Again, he's talking about himself. And yet, The people don't want him. The people don't believe. They want literal, physical bread. So their response is, Lord, give us always this bread. Referring to the bread that he had given them at the beginning of the chapter. And Jesus clarifies, telling them forthrightly that he was talking about himself. That he was speaking spiritually, not physically. Saying to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So this theme of Jesus being the true bread come down out of heaven is a theme that's going to continue in the passage that we come to today. Now, you'll remember that starting back in verse 41, there was a change of scenery. Uh, Starting in verse 41, uh, we we go into a new place. Up until that point, Jesus had been preaching to people outside of the temple in Capernaum. But starting in verse 41, he seems to have been speaking inside of the temple in Capernaum. And of course, that becomes evident in verse 59, uh, which we'll be looking at today, where it says, These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So he's, he's speaking here in Capernaum. 
And these two scenes, inside the temple and outside the temple, are placed alongside each other because they are very similar. Jesus is making very similar statements and arguments in both scenarios. Uh, But at the heart of these similarities that we see between Jesus preaching outside and Jesus preaching inside the temple is Jesus' claim to be the bread of life come down from heaven. As Jesus points out the differences between the manna that their forefathers ate in the wilderness and the bread that Jesus himself gives to all who come to him in true saving faith. At one point in his ministry in Capernaum, Jesus speaks of the condemnation of the city. We can't be sure if it was before the scene that we're looking at today or after, but it took place in Capernaum in Matthew chapter 11, verses 23 and 24. Jesus says this, he says, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. He's speaking about Capernaum. That's where he's ministering in the passage that we're looking at today. This is a sobering reminder, a sobering warning to all who fail to do what Jesus instructs in our passage at hand today. The judgment of God will be worse against Capernaum than it will be against Sodom. And of course, we remember that Sodom was destroyed by fire from heaven back in the book of Genesis. And Jesus is saying that the judgment against Sodom is a cakewalk in comparison to the judgment that Capernaum will face. Because unlike Sodom, who didn't witness any of the the ministry or the miracles of Jesus, Capernaum had every reason in the world to repent and to believe in Christ as he ministered in their presence. And yet, they continued in steadfast rebellion, refusing to believe. So with that said, we need to understand the point that Jesus is teaching in this passage. The point of this passage is that feeding on Jesus spiritually by coming to him in true saving faith is necessary in order to receive both eternal life and temporal sustenance. Let me say that again. The point is that feeding on Jesus spiritually by coming to him in true saving faith is necessary in order to receive both eternal life and temporal sustenance in Christ. So we start with John chapter 6 verses 48 to 50 where Jesus continues speaking in the synagogue in Capernaum. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Now, if you're at home, of course, I do encourage you to have a Bible with you. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can go to blueletterbible.org and find all kinds of translations of the Bible there. Uh, That's one very good website. There's another, there's an app called Literal Word. Uh, That's another great place to to find a Bible if you don't have one. But, But do be following along at home in your Bible. So, Looking at what Jesus has just said in these first three verses, as, as Jesus compares the manna 
that the Israelites were given in the wilderness with himself, comparing that with himself as the bread of life. He starts with the most significant difference of all, which is that while the manna that their fathers ate in the wilderness sustained them and nourished them, that nourishment and that sustenance was only temporal. It only provided what they needed for each day. Eventually, every one of their forefathers who ate the manna in the wilderness died. The manna in the wilderness didn't give them life everlasting. They all died. See, the manna sustained and nourished physical life, but it didn't sustain the soul. It didn't nourish the soul. But those who eat of the bread that Jesus offers, is what Jesus is saying here, is they will never die. They will never die because what he offers nourishes the soul. It nourishes the soul. Jesus is essentially saying, as, as A.W. Pink summarizes, quote, I am that which every sinner needs and without which he will surely perish, end quote. So one of the things that we should see in this passage is the grumbling of the people in response to Jesus' claim, in response to what God had provided for their eternal sustenance. Uh, we already saw that back in verse 41, where John told us, uh, therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Don't you love the fact that even though they were grumbling, he didn't just drop it? They were offended but, and, and confused, but he doesn't let it go. How ironic that their forefathers had done the same exact thing in the wilderness when God had provided manna. They grumbled and grumbled. The, the manna had been a foreshadowing of God's provision in Christ Jesus. And the response was exactly the same when it came to the substance that the foreshadowing pointed toward, that being Christ. But let's recall God's response to the grumbling of the Israelites in the wilderness. They grumbled and they grumbled and they complained and they were discontent. And ultimately, as a result of this sin, the entire generation of those who were delivered in the Exodus was judged by God, forbidden from entering into the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 35, God pronounces his holy judgment on them, saying to them through Moses, Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give your fathers. And Moses adds, The Lord was angry with me also on your account, saying, Not even you shall enter there. So think about what that generation had had seen. Think about what they had, had been personally eyewitnesses to. They had seen the parting of the Red Sea. They had seen all the plagues that God sent upon the land of Egypt. They had seen the daily provision of manna in the wilderness. They, they witnessed the healing of the bronze snake when people were, were bitten by snakes and could be healed by looking at the bronze snake. And yet, despite the fact that they had personally witnessed miracle after miracle after miracle, they refused to believe in God savingly. Despite the fact that they had every reason to believe. Which is the same situation for the people that Jesus is talking to and instructing in John chapter 6. 20,000 people saw Jesus provide enough 
food for them out of five barley loaves and two small fish. And yet, it wasn't enough. And yet, they were not willing to trust. They were not willing to believe savingly. They wanted what was physical. They had no desire for the spiritual. And yet, Jesus tells them very forthrightly, let's look at verse 51 together. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now there has been quite a bit of controversy and debate over this whole passage throughout uh, the the more recent history of the church, uh, at least the last... 500 years or so, a little bit more than that, but, but, but it really came to a head during the Reformation. Uh, we're going to get to that, but there are at least two schools of thought that have interpreted this to be referring to taking communion, uh, to participating in the Lord's Supper, where we, we break the bread and, and we drink of the cup, uh, the wine. Uh, those two primary groups that, that have this view of uh, that this is communion, uh, that Jesus is referring to being the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans. Those are the primary groups. Roman Catholics take the view that when they partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper, the substance of the wine and the bread is literally transformed uh, into, uh, into the literal body and blood of Christ. Lutherans have a very similar view, slightly different. They don't believe that the bread and wine are transformed uh, substantially, like in their, in their substance, but they do affirm that the essence of the literal body and blood of Christ are present alongside the substance of the elements which remain present. So Roman Catholics will say that grace is actually received not through faith, but through uh, partaking of the elements of communion. And Lutherans uh, affirm something very, very similar. According to one Lutheran blog I was looking at and you know, came across this last week, in taking communion, their view is, quote, Our Lord and Savior is continually distributing to us the body and blood of the sacrifice he made for us, the sacrifice by which he paid for the sins of the entire world. Thus, receiving his body and blood, we receive forgiveness, life, and salvation, end quote. That is very, very close to the Roman Catholic view. But what are, what's the view that we take The view that we take is the view that's articulated in the Heidelberg Catechism. If you're familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism, it's it's basically um, just a a set of questions and answers uh, from a Reformed Protestant perspective. Uh, So this came, this was birthed out of the Reformation, and this is the question. This is the question that it asks related to this subject. Uh, The question is number 73 in the Heidelberg Catechism. The question is, are the bread and fruit of the vine changed into the real body and blood of Christ? And the answer that it gives, uh, which, which is our view, is no. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood and does not itself wash away the sins, but is a sign of our union with Christ, so too the bread and fruit of the vine of the Lord's Supper are not changed into the actual body and blood of Christ. It is called the body of Christ in keeping with the nature and language of the sacraments. So, We don't believe that this passage is referring 
to communion. Uh, both Roman Catholics and Lutherans do hold the belief that communion is necessary for salvation, and the go-to passage that they will use to support that view is the passage that we are looking at here today. But we can be absolutely positively certain that this is not the case because Jesus is not talking about communion here. Who's he talking to? He's talking to unbelievers. Do, do you really think that he would have instituted communion, the, the Lord's Supper, the, the, one of the two sacraments that we practice, with a group of unbelievers? No, he, he hasn't even had the, the Last Supper yet, which is where the sacrament of communion was instituted. So what is Jesus talking about here when he's talking about eating of his flesh and, and drinking his blood? He's talking about believing and receiving him. And he's talking about the sacrifice that he will offer up to atone for sin and the importance of putting all of our confidence for salvation in his work rather than in our works. Further, um, who ate the physical bread that Jesus served in the feeding of the 5,000 at the beginning of this chapter? It was unbelievers, all unbelievers. And communion isn't for non-believers. So why would Jesus be giving non-believers instructions for the importance of taking the Lord's Supper? Why would Jesus be saying that in order to be forgiven, you have to do this, and a bunch of unbelievers have done it? Are they forgiven? They're not, because they haven't repented and believed in Christ. And Jesus wouldn't be instituting this sacrament in front of unbelievers. Third, the, the sacrament of communion is a means of sanctifying grace. It's not a means of receiving justifying grace. Justification is the declaration by God that we are innocent, that we stand in Christ's perfect righteousness, forgiven and redeemed. Sanctification, on the other hand, is what follows after justification, Justification is what happens when we first believe in Christ. We are justified. We are forgiven. We are redeemed. What happens after that is sanctification. Sanctification is the lifelong process of growing in Christ's likeness, of growing, therefore, in personal holiness and piety and things like that. So to strengthen us for this journey and to, to encourage us to grow in Christ's likeness along the journey, God has given us, he has ordained uh, various means of grace, sanctifying grace, that is. Sanctifying grace, which includes things like preaching the word, uh, prayer, baptism, uh, studying uh, the Bible, and partaking in the Lord's Supper. Uh, none of those things justifies us. It's possible for an unbeliever to do those things, but none of those things actually justifies us. None of them render us innocent before God, but all of these things will sanctify the person who is justified. They contribute to our growth. These, these means of grace, sanctifying grace, are, uh, are, are meant to contribute to our growth in Christ's likeness. So Jesus was very clearly speaking figuratively here. If you look at the whole context, the whole chapter, it's very clear that Jesus is speaking figuratively. If he meant that we must literally eat his flesh, then why does he go on to say in verse 63, if you look down in your Bible at verse 63, uh, 
the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. The spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. As J.C. Ryle notes in his commentary on this passage, he says, quote, We may eat the Lord's Supper and yet not eat and drink Christ's body and blood. We may eat and drink Christ's body and blood and yet not eat the Lord's Supper, end quote. In other words, what he's saying there is those two things aren't the same thing. Communion, partaking of the Lord's Supper, isn't the same as eating Christ's flesh and blood as he's instructing here in John chapter 6. I mean, Jesus often used figures of speech. When Jesus said, this is my body, note by the way, he didn't say this is my flesh. When he said that, he didn't mean that in a literal sense. And we can know that because it's impossible for Christ's body, he had a human body, uh, to be in two places at the same time. So we don't interpret him literally there for the same reason that we don't take him literally when he says things like, I am the door, or I am the true vine. In verse 47, you want to note the parallels here. The parallels in this chapter are, are crucial to understanding what Jesus is saying. In verse 47, Jesus said, he who believes, he who believes has eternal life. Now he's saying, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Notice that those two things are parallel. So what does it mean to eat of this bread? What it said back in verse 47, it means to believe. So to eat of the bread of heaven is what? It's to believe in Jesus savingly. Do you see how, how uh, these statements are parallel and how they help us understand and clarify what Jesus is saying? So this is something that the people weren't exactly following. They, they were still finding it very confusing. They continued to lack spiritual understanding. So Jesus continues. Let's look at verses 52 to 54. We read, Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, of course, we can only imagine how offensive this was to his audience, to Jesus' audience. The idea of eating flesh, pretty gross. Uh, it, it, the idea of drinking blood, obviously deeply, deeply offensive and, and confusing to the Jews. Uh, cannibalism was forbidden by God, if for no other reason than that it involved shedding the blood of a human being who bore the image of God. Uh, but God told the sons of Israel in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 14, he said, quote, You are not to eat the blood of any flesh, for all the life of the flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And yet, here's Jesus speaking in this kind of language, confronting these people with the importance of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. So what does that mean? What does it mean to eat his flesh and to drink his blood? In a nutshell, it means to believe. It means to personally appropriate his sacrifice, his atonement on our own personal behalf, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
He's referring to the sacrifice that he would make on behalf of all who believe in him, all who are drawn to him by the Father. Now remember that this chapter actually started with the people coming to Jerusalem for a very specific purpose. Do you remember what it was? They were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. So this passage takes place right around that same time of year. The Jewish Passover was instituted as a means of remembering the way that God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. God had sent the angel of death to slay all of the firstborn of Egypt, but he had instructed the Israelites that they were to avoid this terrible judgment by sacrificing a lamb and to spread its blood on the doorpost and then to eat of that lamb. So as the angel of death went through uh, Egypt, only those homes that had the blood of the lamb on their doorposts would be spared. So part of the Jewish Passover, therefore, was, uh, would include eating that sacrificial lamb. By doing so, the Jewish people were identifying with the sacrifice for sin, the, the wage of which is, is death, and that was in the Lamb of God. So, so Jesus is using this kind of language so that his hearers would, would draw a connection between the sacrificial lamb of the Exodus and the sacrifice of of the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist said back in John chapter 1. Now we should see the way that verse 44 is a parallel, uh, or verse 54 is a parallel of verse 44. In verse 54, Jesus says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. But if you compare that to verse 41, uh, back there Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent, uh, who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see the parallel there at the very end? The last day, being raised up on the last day. So there's a parallel there that helps us understand. In verse 40, Jesus said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. He doesn't say people who eat communion will be raised on the last day. He's not talking about communion here. He's talking about believing in him savingly. That's what gives a person eternal life. And that is why Jesus will raise those people on the last day. So what happens, according to, to these, these three verses that we just looked at, what happens when a person is drawn to Christ by the Father? They believe, right? They, they believe that they'll, they'll receive eternal life. And Jesus will raise them up on the last day. That's what verse 44 says. So seeing the parallels between uh, various verses in this chapter are imperative for understanding what Jesus is saying. He's just fleshing out the same theme, so to speak, of believing in him, putting true saving faith in him. All this is to say that Jesus is not talking about the importance of taking communion. Communion is important. God has ordained it. He has instituted it for our good. But it is powerless to the person who does not believe savingly in Jesus. 
If anything, to take communion in unbelief is actually to eat and drink a stricter judgment against themselves according to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 29. Now Jesus is talking about the importance, indeed the, the necessity of truly believing in him and the benefit of doing so. That benefit being receiving salvation and the promise of redemption in him. The promise that not only are we eternally secure in our salvation with him, but that he will raise us up on the last day. So if we understand what Jesus is saying here, we have a firm understanding of what saving faith includes, what it looks like. Just like eating physical, like literal physical bread is necessary for receiving the physical sustenance that's in that bread, so too believing in Christ, putting saving faith in Christ is necessary for receiving eternal life and receiving spiritual sustenance. You know, if you, if you just have a, a piece of bread and you're just looking at it and you, you know there's nourishment in it, but you don't eat of it, what good is it going to do you? None. It it won't do you any good. No, you you must eat it. And likewise, Christ's sacrifice is of no personal benefit to a person who knows that Jesus was sacrificed and yet does not repent and believe in him and in him alone. Further, just like you can't be physically nourished by somebody else eating the bread, so too you cannot be nourished spiritually by somebody else believing in your place somehow. You know, maybe you come from a very religious upbringing. Maybe your parents were Christians and you were brought up in a, in a very good Christian home, brought up going to church regularly. You know, all these things are very good. Those are blessings. Uh, those things are all very, very good, of course. But if you haven't personally, yourself, believed, having been raised in a Christian environment is as spiritually beneficial to you as going to a buffet and yet starving and not eating uh, because you know those around you are eating. Um, nobody can believe for you, just like nobody can eat for you. You will not be saved by somebody else's faith, just like you will not have your stomach filled by somebody else eating bread. You must personally repent and believe in Christ in order to be saved. Jesus' promise here in verse 54 that those who eat his flesh and drink of his blood, they will be raised on the last day. It's a reminder, friends, of the certainty, the assurance, the promise of redemption, the promise that our salvation, the work that God has started in us will be completed. It's the Father's will, as we've already seen in this chapter, it's the Father's will that the Son would not even lose one of those who are drawn to Him by the Father. And He won't. He won't lose even one. The salvation of those who truly believe, of those who who eat His flesh and drink His blood, is secure. We will persevere in our faith, not because of how great our faith is, but because of how great our Savior is. We'll persevere in our faith because the Son will not even lose one of us. Because the Father's will is that not one of us would be lost. Feeding on Jesus spiritually, drinking His blood spiritually, 
by coming to him in true saving faith is necessary in order to receive both eternal life and temporal sustenance in Christ. Let's continue looking at verses 55 to 59. Jesus continues telling them, For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Jesus, friends, is the one object of saving faith. He's the one saving object of true saving faith. That's what he means when he says that his flesh is the true bread and that his blood is the true drink. The word true doesn't, uh, doesn't mean literal. No, it means true as opposed to false, as opposed to being a cheap substitute, as opposed to being something that the world offers. He's saying that there's there's no thing and there's no one else in whom eternal life and salvation and redemption can be found. Nothing. Nothing that the world has to offer even comes close to comparing to what Jesus is offering here. There is an unbreakable union that exists between Christ and all who savingly believe in him. When he talks about abiding in, uh, about how we abide in him and he in us, he's referring to that unbreakable union. Peter said that Christians become partakers of the divine nature in his epistle. Uh, he lives within us. The divine nature lives within us, and, and we live within him. There's, there's a sense in which, you know, in our culture, we say, you are what you eat. Um, the food becomes a literal, physical part of us. It nourishes our blood, which becomes part of us. Uh, it gives us building blocks, like proteins and things like that, which uh, build up muscles that are very much part of us. And Jesus is saying that to believe savingly in him is to become one with him in a very real sense so that our life is in him the same way that you might say a grafted branch's life is in the life of the tree. Uh, let's apply that concept of, of grafting to what Jesus says here in verse 57, where he says, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. Why does the branch that's grafted into the tree, why does that branch live? The branch lives only because the tree lives. And the, the, the tree lives and nourishes that branch now, sometimes in, in the botanical world, a graft doesn't work. It just doesn't take for one reason or another. The, the branch that's being grafted on there dies for whatever reason. The graft just didn't take. But Jesus is assuring us here that such is never, ever, ever the case with him. He will abide in the one who comes to him in true saving faith, and the one who comes to him in true saving faith will abide in him. So how could we not find temporal sustenance, things like joy 
and peace and contentment in, in the here and now if we knew that this was not the case. If we knew that there was a possibility that this wasn't true, that, that we would die. If we knew that, that all this would one day just come to an end and our faith was really in vain, what kind of temporal sustenance, what kind of joy or peace could we possibly have? Think about it, friends. Think about it. That is the best, that is the very best that the world has to offer you. Temporary, fleeting joy in things that will come to an end. Things that will eventually be lost. In things that you will be separated from by death, if not sooner. But Jesus is offering us something better He's offering eternal life, life that even death cannot pry from our grip, life that death cannot separate us from. When our bodies become frail and die, we know that our spirit is immediately received into the glory of Christ's presence. Paul says to the Philippians, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's unlike anything, anything that this world has to offer. Paul says to the church in Corinth, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Friends, that is the hope that we have. That is the hope that we cling to. That is the future reality for every Christian once their time in this world comes to an end. But there's even a sense in which our physical bodies will be part of what it means to have eternal life because Jesus is promising here that even if if we should be buried in the soil or buried at the bottom of the sea, he's made a promise to raise our bodies on the last day. For the fathers of the Israelites in the wilderness, they ate the manna, but they died. It was only physical sustenance, physical sustenance, nourishment, but whoever believes in Christ, the true bread and true drink come down out of heaven, will live forever. Like so many people today, Jesus' audience wouldn't have it. They weren't interested. They preferred what the world has to offer. Maybe that's advice for living your best life now. Maybe it's how to be a better employee, how to be happier as a husband, how to have a higher self-esteem, you know, how to be positive and, and uplifting, you know, what, whatever. Those things are all great, by the way. Those things are fine in and of themselves, I suppose. But we must see that those things don't even come close to having Christ. If you have all those things, and there are unbelievers who have all those things. So if you have all those things, but you don't have Christ, you don't have anything. You have nothing. The primary implication of this passage, friends, is the invitation that Jesus extends here. It's open to all. God isn't holding anybody back from coming to him. What holds people from coming to Christ? Our nature. That's why we must be drawn by the Father to Christ. But the invitation is open to all. We all have a responsibility to come to Christ. 
And Jesus, in, in offering this invitation, he uses words like, like anyone and whoever here. This is, this is an invitation that's extended to you. It's an invitation that's extended to me. It's an invitation that's extended to anyone and everyone, regardless of their age, regardless of their social standing, regardless of their culture. All those things don't matter when it comes to Christ's invitation to come to him in saving faith and submission. He doesn't say, the wealthy person who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He doesn't say, the, the moral person who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. No, the invitation is for all to come to him and to receive this priceless gift of eternal life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. A second central implication of this passage is that we must come to Christ often. Most of us have, on average, three meals per day, or, or maybe you've tried breaking that down into six smaller meals per day to, to keep your metabolism going. That's kind of a new health fad these days. Whatever the case, Nobody thinks that having one meal around Christmas and one meal around Easter, or maybe even just a meal every two or three months, is enough to sustain a person, to sustain life. And yet, many people have that attitude toward coming to Christ, coming to church. They, they, they get this idea that you know, if, they've, if they've made a profession of faith once, that's all they need to do. That is simply not the case, friends. We need him every day, every hour. He's ordained these means of grace by which we are sanctified. One of those is coming together as a body, as a church body, and worshiping him together as a church family. That's one of the reasons this quarantine has been so hard. So I would urge you today, friends, do not be satisfied by what you got from Christ yesterday or last year, or five years ago. Come to him often. Come to him regularly for spiritual sustenance. Come to him regularly for temporal satisfaction, joy, and peace. It's possible, even probable, I suppose, that the medical and the scientific community are going to develop a vaccine to treat this coronavirus. They will continue to, to look for and invent ways to prolong and to preserve human life. But while that's good, it doesn't compare. It doesn't measure up to what Jesus offers. Jesus offers eternal life, life in union with Christ, life in never-ending, harmonious fellowship with the triune God of creation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You can do all the right things, friends, to keep your body healthy, to prolong your life, to live a very, very long life, perhaps. But if you do all those things and do not have Christ, if you have not believed in Him, trusting in Him alone for your salvation, then even your healthy, happy life will one day be pried out of your hands and you will then face God's righteous judgment. But if you will come to Christ in faith, believing in him, 
this gift, this wonderful, unfathomable gift of eternal life is yours. A gift that nobody, nobody can ever take from your hands. And he will raise you up on the last day, just like he's promised. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that in Christ every need that we have is met. Thank you that in Christ we are ransomed, we are reconciled, we are redeemed, we're forgiven because of his work, not because of our own goodness. We have none. But because of Christ's active obedience to your will. Thank you that Christ came and never parted from your will. We thank you for the fact that he walked blamelessly before you, sinlessly before you, while we haven't. We thank you that he lived the life that we should have and that he died the death that we should have. The death that we deserved. And yet, out of your great love, you sent him as the true bread come down from heaven to give us life. Oh Lord, may our desire be to be more grateful to be motivated by a sense of thanksgiving for what you've done for us. May we love you and follow after you and pursue you all the more because of this great gift, this bread of life come down from heaven to give us life. We pray, Lord, that our lives would reflect that. And we also acknowledge that without the Holy Spirit working in us, our lives could never reflect your goodness. Our lives could never reflect your grace and your mercy, the work that you've done in us. So we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, transforming us, growing us in Christ's likeness, sanctifying us, that Christ will be glorified in our lives and in our witness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. 
and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.